From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and I'm here with Mitch Whitus. We want to talk today about this very timely, tragic, horrific thing that's going on in Israel with Hamas attacking Israel. We only record these periodically, Mitch. We're not doing live shows, uh, so it's not, you know, we, we couldn't be right on top of it, but I think it's important enough that our audience hears a dialogue bef- between you and I. Well, and I think this is an issue that will be topical for a while. You're right, you're right. It's not like we have to be like, okay, right, uh, right on top of it, but I want to make sure people realize the context and that we're talking about it. The biggest issue is, from our perspective, as always, is looking at whether it's a current events issue or a ongoing conflict of issue or a issue of principle, whether we're how to apply it from a pro-capitalist, pro-individual, pro-individual rights perspective. And I think it's I think you can definitely make a case that this is something that anyone who's interested in the debates about capitalism, free markets, and individual rights needs to take a position on. Uh, and I think you agree with that. I do, yeah. So, I mean, most people, if they're paying attention to the news, this is basically a week ago or so. Um, was it the 7th of October when it happened? Yeah, I think it was October 7th, uh, last weekend, where Hamas just absolutely, the Hamas faction in the Palestinian region, in Ga- the Gaza Strip of Israel, absolutely surprised the Israeli military uh, and the world by sneaking through the fences and having an aerial assault. You know, they, they were flying in with kites and they had a naval assault and they had, you know, a multi-pronged terrorist attack and literally had barbaric tactics in terms of their raping, pillaging, and, and killing. beheading, killing, burning Isra- innocent Israeli citizens. And I, I can't imagine a more stark example of good versus evil in today's world. And we've had, really, for the last 100 years, lots of really good examples of good guys versus bad guys. That's one position I want to make sure that people are clear on. I think anyone who's pro-individual rights, uh, pro-civilization, pro-capitalism, which I think those are all connected, should have the position that there are such things as good guys and bad guys in the world. What do you think about that? No, I agree. I think that there are certain objective truths. I think often today we uh, get into this trap of, well, everything's kind of relative. You know, there's really, can you say that the 9-11 hijackers did a bad thing? You know, really all these cultural influences. Like, no, 9-11 hijackers did an evil act. Yeah, and that's clear. And and that, that that's one of the biggest points is I think that even, maybe even, much more so than the Palestinians and the Islamo fascists all over the Middle East, it's oftentimes the people in the West, because of that moral relativism, not being willing to judge and to say, no, this is clearly evil, that they have enabled uh, that kind of behavior. And so that's one point. I I think that the people in the West, and I would say mostly from the academics and the moral relativists that we've seen in higher education have coached a whole generation now of Americans, and, and this is happening not only in America but all over the world. We're seeing demonstrations all over the world of people who are 
you know, somehow pro-Palestinian, pro, uh, pro-Hamas, pro-Hamas in this case, pro-terrorism, pro-evil, um, gash the Jews. I mean, you've got uh, crowds in, in Sydney, Australia, and other places that I would have never have thought chanting gas the Jews. And I hadn't seen that. Yeah, I mean, it's just insane. So uh, again, I think this is a clear example of good versus evil, as you can see. And anyone who's pro-civilization, pro-individual rights, pro-mutual voluntary trade, as in capitalism, should actually be very much clear on this is good and evil. And in this context, the Israelis are the good guys, unequivocally. Well, and as we're recording, uh, President Biden is probably on his way now. That's right. Uh, he's on his way Israel. over there. And he's going to say basically the same kind of thing, right? He's going to say these guys are evil and we're 100% behind the Israelis. I mean, I think that's sort of a little bit too little too late. I, I believe that Biden, Trump before him, certainly Obama, uh, our whole foreign policy has been one of appeasement for the last 50 years in terms of the the barbarism that's gone on from Islamic fascists all over the Middle East. So what do you think Israel should do? So we, we support Israel, it, it is your argument, as a defender of capitalism, Absolutely. we support Israel. And I, I agree with that. What should Israel do now? Maybe for all of our listeners, we should back up a little bit. I think I have you know made it clear what I mean by capitalism in many other episodes. But we should make sure that our listeners who are tuning in maybe for the first time, realize what we mean by capitalism. Capitalism is that social system where the rights of the individual are protected, or first of all, recognized, understood that that's what is uh, supreme in any social system, is that each individual has a right to their own life, their own property, their own pursuit of happiness. They get to determine what happens with their life as long as they're not violating someone else's rights. That's what we mean by capitalism. And a, a capitalist system is one that the government and the uh, system of justice, the whole apparatus that's legitimate is designed to protect those individuals. That's what we mean by, by a capitalist system. And hopefully by defining it that way, people are beginning, you know, obviously say, well, I can see where the Israelis do that more than the uh, Hamas does. I'm sorry, go, go ahead with your question now. Well, you've made it very clear kind of what your position is on, on supporting Israel. Presumably President Biden's going to do the same thing. So now, what should Israel do? As, a, as defenders of capitalism, what, you what, know, are, what let, are let me supporting? rephrase that. What should they do? <laughs> what will they do versus what should they do? Well, they'll likely, and, and the thing is, I am no expert on the Middle East. I was recently there, as you know. In yeah. fact, I've, I've shared stories with you, and I don't know. Tell me if I'm repeating myself too much, Mitch, but on our uh, leadership program in the Rockies class opening day and the night before, I, I touch on this a little bit because we do talk about the Army for Freedom. Uh, we use that term, uh, you know, the Army for Freedom. We're building the Army for Freedom in both in Colorado in in the broader U.S. And we're trying to train people who are interested in civic activism, people who are, care about their country in the principle, the, first of all, the founding principles, the original founding of American principles, as well as, you know, the rediscovering those and the connection that, that that has to the social system of capitalism and, and the interconnectedness of those two ideas, that they're basically one and the same. And I shared you know, my experience less than six months ago. You know, less than six months ago, I was speaking for the Free Market Roadshow. The Free Market Roadshow is an organization out of uh, Austria, part of the Austrian School of Economics, and they recruit people like me all over Europe and actually now in the U.S. as well 
And it, it's a very cool opportunity, by the way. It is a fantastic opportunity. I've traveled to places I never would have gone before and met people I would never would have met and had the opportunity to speak about these principles of freedom. But I was in, I, I actually spoke in Tel Aviv on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. I spoke in Ashkelon, spoke also in Ben-Gurion University while I was there. This is less than six months ago. And I remember my host, Boaz, who is driving me south out of Tel Aviv and told me, you know, this is actually, we're going to the most bomb city in Israel. And I'm like, Boaz, why did I get in the car with you? <laughs> and he explained to me, and this is how they live, and that they, you know, he wouldn't do that if he felt uncomfortable with his own life. Right. But uh, that they have all kinds of warning systems, you know, the red alert. The Iron uh, Dome. The Iron Dome, all kinds of systems where the Israelis have gotten used to, even though it's, in a sense, an inconvenience. You know, they mostly are safe because their government has really invested heavily in their protection, protecting their lives. And so I, I went and felt really comfortable, really safe. I did have some experiences in Tel Aviv where the the application on my phone... Did I tell you this already about sitting there with the nuggets and all that? Well, you told me you had to get into a bomb shelter. Well, I didn't. I mean, I, I this is a rabbit hole for our listeners, but I, I I had never been to Israel before. And so I didn't really have this... I knew I wanted to go. I had long wanted to visit this country and had, like I think anyone, a little bit of apprehension about how safe is it. And I've gone to... You know, I've been to Turkey, Istanbul, and places where... You know, at times it was kind of dicey, but I never felt like my life was really in danger. And I felt like that was, certainly once I landed in Israel, I didn't feel like, you know, there was any real issue. But before I'd gone, I downloaded this app called Red Alert Mm -hmm. that basically is something all the Israelis rely on to warn them when there's rockets being launched from Gaza or the West Bank or, or, you know, any number of places that are routinely attacking the Israeli citizens. I had forgotten that I had downloaded it because I felt safe. I walked around Tel Aviv, you know, enjoyed the restaurants, the beach. It was a wonderful experience. Until well, it I, happened. <laughs> I had trouble sleeping. As anyone who you know travels internationally does, you kind of get out of whack with regard to your sleeping. And this is back in the spring when the Nuggets, the Denver Nuggets basketball team, was you know, really playing well and competing for the NBA championship. And so I was like, well, I can't sleep, so I'm going to get up. At the time, it was like the game started at five in the morning in Tel Aviv. Yeah. So I'm sitting there in my underwear with a cup of coffee watching the Nuggets, and my phone starts buzzing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, there's rocket incoming, you know? And I, I looked out the window. I didn't see anything going on. There was no evidence of any kind of rockets or terrorist attack or bombs going off. I looked down the hall, and no one was panicking. And I, I saw the bomb shelter in the the hotel and every every floor in that hotel and I my assumption is that every hotel throughout Israel has on every floor a bomb shelter for people to be able to protect themselves like that but that was my experience uh, of you know feeling like what kind of situation did I get in and what do the Israeli people live with every day but fast forward to 6 months later I'm sitting last weekend watching TV watching this horror and looking at the street where I had been in Ashkelon you know, and it being turning in, into rubble because of the Hamas attacks and, and all chaos breaking loose. Now, that's a personal story of me, you know, having that experience. But and I don't I don't think we need to go into the long history of multiple examples. And they're they're different organizations. Hamas is different than Hezbollah, is different than the PLO, is different than ISIS. You know, they're all different organizations and have different different uh, grievances and 
somewhat different ideologies. But they do learn from each other. They do learn from each other. They learn tactics from each other. And they are all committed to wiping Israel off the map. And so your question, what should they do? What should the Israelis, what should the good guys do in this case? And I believe that anyone who is the good guy and faces this kind of existential threat needs to completely eliminate and crush and break the will of, both break the will of and the ability of the enemy to perpetrate this ongoing terror attack you know, that's going on for 50 years. And that means absolutely crushing Hamas and probably other organizations. So what we, we know of right now, and there's probably lots of things going on that we don't know of, that Israeli intelligence only knows of, but we know that Israel has asked about a million people to leave the northern Gaza Strip so that Israel can go and take out these systems of tunnels. Right. Uh, and from what we understand, it's actually a pretty sophisticated network of tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip. Um, partially, I was just reading an article, they may have learned some of the um, tunnel building from ISIS and how to properly, you know, quote-unquote properly uh, build these these underground facilities. But anyway, Israel's asked a million people to leave the, the northern part of Gaza so that Israel can go on, completely destroy the tunnel system. Yep. We know that that's, that's the strategy. So is that completely wiping Hamas off the map? Does that fit into what you just said? Well, it fits into. I don't think it completely wipes them off the map. They've got to find the leaders and anyone who's at all sympathetic to that cause, anyone who's sympathetic to the Hamas ideology in Gaza and completely either kill them or jail them. And the rest of the population has to be absolutely pacified. Uh, and, you know, this is a long-term process to, to, to say to, because my understanding is that half the, half the population of Gaza is, you know, under 18. So you're talking about kids, innocent kids. Now, I mean, I don't know, there may be 17-year-olds who are, you know, carrying rifles or raping Israeli women or whatever it might be, but there, there, there's a lot of people who, a lot of young people in this area who didn't choose to live here. They were born here and they've been raised this way. And I, you know, before we started recording, you mentioned the idea of, you know, just creating more terrorists, right? You, you bomb them and then they want to bomb you and it's a never-ending cycle of violence. And people who talk that way don't, necessarily see it as well is one group correct are they just are they are they correct in being able to defend themselves well i think that's a little bit of a broad stroke it is you say people who think like that which is you're insinuating i think like that <laughs> no i didn't mean to insinuate <laughs> you think like that i i actually think you have uh well this is what we're here to talk about i mean um, you ask the question. That's the big question. What should, if someone recognizes, now there are lots of people, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people in the U.S., lots of people on U.S. campuses who don't recognize that difference that yeah. we did, that we're saying there's good and evil. These are the good guys, these are the bad guys. Well, it's tragic, actually, it is. that people can't see that difference. It is. But I do want to address this idea of, you know, what does total victory look like? Because in principle, I agree with you. I mean, eventually, Israel, first of all, has a right to defend itself, has a right to defend its existence, and we know that Hamas wants to destroy Israel. But the question is, what does total victory look like? How do you actually achieve that? And 
I'll be honest, I don't know in this case what that looks like. And the reason for that is because I just think the political, the way that, that the Gaza Strip is set up, Israel is set up, just politically, how things exist today, having the Gaza Strip there, millions of people crammed into a little area. Right now, a million more people are going to be moving into southern Gaza. We know that, honestly, innocent Palestinians are going to die. They have already died. Yep. And it just continues to create this culture where terrorism can continue to thrive. And I think you can go out and kill Hamas leaders, which I think they should do, by the way. Not saying that Israel should not do that. Israel should absolutely kill the leaders of Hamas. Hamas fighters destroy the tunnel network. Well, but even even civilians to the extent that they're enabling these people. I mean, this is part of, you use the term total victory. I would go back to, and unfortunately the author of this book is no longer with us, but I would highly recommend people, and there's a number of different books I might recommend in this regard. One is Elon Journo's What Justice Demands. That's a more contemporary book, and it's an analysis of the Middle East, the entire Middle East and Israeli uh, situation for the last over 50 years. They, he goes back even before that. That's one book. But even prior to that, I would, I would recommend people read a book called Nothing Less Than Victory that only tangentially talks about the Middle East. It talk, it's a history book about what it takes to win wars and what does it mean for a just system, a just political system, a free country— to defend its citizens properly. Going back to the Peloponnesian Wars with the Greeks, going back to Romans, going back to the Civil War, going back to World War II. And the principle he basically illustrates, and he talks about it in the title with nothing less than victory, is that if you look at history from, from the standpoint of good and evil and being able to make that judgment, being able to say, okay, these are the people who are right. These are the people who are fighting for freedom protecting their citizens, protecting their citizens' rights to be free. If you look at that, whenever they've been threatened throughout history, unless they win a total victory, then they have to keep fighting. And they may end up being eliminated. I mean, the, the example that popped into my mind when you were talking about just creating more, more of a cycle of violence and more terrorists is that was the case with the American Civil War. I mean, the North wasn't winning the war. It should have been. It had an overwhelming force. It had an overwhelming advantage, both from a, a war machine ability, you know, an e- economic advantage. You had more freedom in the North, and therefore you had more productivity, and therefore you had the ability to create more and better weapons. But then you need Sherman's march to the sea to destroy. Right. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. But what I'm saying is, I think having millions of people crammed into a small, pretty impoverished area— I think to achieve total victory, they have to figure out something politically to do with the Gaza Strip. You do. Because it existing as it has existed is a breeding ground for continued terrorism. And you can go in and destroy the Hamas. You could, Israel could destroy every Hamas tunnel, destroy every Hamas leader and fighter. But the conditions of how things are set up politically with the Gaza Strip there, the humanitarian conditions there, well, that political system has to be eliminated itself. I mean, Israel has to occupy that area now. Well, right. I mean, something's got to change yeah. because this has happened before, not to this as severe an extent, right. but this has happened before where Israel takes drastic steps to defend itself, to try to take out leaders in the Gaza Strip that are threatening it, but then it retreats, everything goes back to status quo, 
And that's why I'm almost pessimistic about this whole situation. It's you Well, know, it sounds like you're pessimistic about what will happen versus what should happen. I am. I'm pessimistic about... I, I should say I don't know. I should say I have no idea what, what will happen, of course. But yeah, I am pessimistic just by looking at history, yeah. <laughs> what has happened before. I just see this Well, scenario. when you say history, history of the Middle East, right? Well, yeah. And I just think a history of this conflict in yeah. particular, yeah. which has been going on for a long time. For a long time. And I just think of this scenario where a lot of innocent people die on both sides and nothing really gets resolved. And we do this all over again in 10 years. But that's because Israel and the West generally and the U.S., have had a, a bad foreign policy and a bad philosophy driving that foreign policy, not being able to say, we are right. We have the confidence, the moral confidence to say we are right. Even though you can you can pick about nitpick about the American system and, and what Americans have done or Israelis have done. And certainly there's probably been some injustices to you know, individual Palestinians. But when you look at the principle involved, it's unequivocal. You know, Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims, all have more and more freedom and better rights and better ability to flourish inside of Israel than they do in Gaza. I mean, yeah, there, there's, it's just unequivocal. And so, the the point being that the West and certainly Israel have to change their philosophy to say, no, this is existential. It's interesting. I, I listened to a podcast over the weekend of a former Mossad. Uh, soldier, uh, and he was very uh, intelligent in terms of his analysis analysis of the whole situation. And, and Mossad, by the way, for anyone who may not know, uh, Israeli secret services. Yeah, the elite forces in, in the Israeli uh, military. And he's no longer in that. And he said, I don't, I don't have any access to plans on the ground. You know, uh, you don't have any credentials as far as being able to, to know what the plan is. But he made the point that I think is really poignant about what the Americans thought and what the world thought in terms of the threat of Nazi Germany and imperialist Japan. It was 100%. This is an existential threat. We win, they lose, or else we're not going to be here. And that's what the attitude has to be for the Israelis now. And we have to support them in that endeavor to say it's 100%. We have to eliminate this threat completely. We have to destroy not only their ability, and this is what you're talking about when you're talking about tunnels and leaders and so forth, but I'm talking about further than that, and this is what John Lewis talks about in this book, Nothing Less Than Victory. You have to absolutely destroy the enemy's will to fight. And I don't think the will will be destroyed as long as Gaza Strip exists as it— as long as the current situation exists as it— as it has been existing. Well, and that, that much is clear. It's not going to exist. I mean, you're saying that, okay, there's this temporary thing, and they'll, they'll go up and go in and clean house, and maybe they'll pacify you know, a portion of the population, and maybe they'll occupy it for a while, but it'll go back to the same thing where it's like, oh, well, we have to pay attention to the rest of the world and the UN and all the other Arab nations around there, and they're going to negotiate, and we have to kind of capitulate. Yeah, which, saying, which has happened before. It's That's happened why I say multiple that. times yeah. before. <laughs> and you know, the thing is, the U.S. Uh, you know, when we had 9/11, we had the opportunity to eliminate ultimately the threat of this kind of terrorist uh, ideology, and we didn't. We our foreign policy was misguided and said we're going to go into Iraq. We didn't do what we needed to do in uh, Afghanistan, and you know that 
more recently just turned into the horror of tail between your legs type of absolute waste of human life and, and capital. But we never addressed the real problem, which is an ideology centered in Tehran in Iran. I mean, that's where the, that's where the most uh, funding and ideological strategy is in terms of supporting this kind of terrorist and, and this kind of attack on the West, on, on both you know, the, the Israelis as well as the Americans. Uh, and we have to confront that. I want to take a step back um, on a couple of points. One of them, I think that some of our listeners who are maybe very libertarian-leaning would just have a non-intervention <laughs> philosophy. They do. And, and I, I don't have that non-intervention philosophy. Generally, I'm, you know, leave us alone, we leave you alone. But I am for intervention in certain cases, so I, I, I can't honestly challenge you on that point. But I can think of people who would. Absolutely. What would you say to people who would say, you know what, we just make things worse by getting involved? Well, I think they, they have a point that we make things worse because we don't have we don't act on ideological principle or, or moral confidence. And the, I think the libertarians oftentimes are guilty of that themselves. They, they have sort of accepted that non-aggression principle, but not actually gone deep enough to say, no, liberty itself is built on a whole system of ideas, including rights, including objective truth, that they have rejected. I mean, oftentimes libertarians will not accept the idea of good and evil that there really is good and evil. They're just talking about, oh, well, every individual has their own perspective, and so they should be free to express it. And yeah, you can't, you can't have aggression, so we got to stop that. But they don't have any principled way to say, no, this is massive aggression, and it has to be eliminated. Now, they do have a point about, okay, what is the purpose of the American government, and when, should we, when and where should we be intervening? This is a clear-cut case. I mean, I, I believe uh, that the Israelis can defend themselves, they, but they need more than anything our moral support. They need our clarity with regard to them doing the right thing. And I also believe that it's in our interest, in our, client, in our own individual American citizens' interest for us to help them win this war once and for all and eliminate that kind of threat, that ideological and existential threat that's out there. But what I, what I think I heard you say, but I want to get into a little bit more, is that part of what's going to truly take to win this war, you said— one, occupying Gaza. Occupying and pacifying a whole generation of Palestinians. Although one can argue we, we tried to do that in Afghanistan. Yeah. 20 years, a whole generation, pretty much. We are there, set up a new government. I mean, you can argue— Well, but we set up a whole—I mean, think, think of the contrast. And again, I, I hate to keep repeating myself about—but I, I don't. I mean, John Lewis is somebody should—everyone should read this book— he, he makes that contrast. I mean, if you say what we did in Afghanistan, we actually set up the world to be safe for democracy in Afghanistan. We didn't do that with the Japanese. We didn't do that with the Germans. We bombed the hell out of them. We punished them. And their entire citizens knew that they had no hope of a future without absolute surrender. We didn't do that in Iraq. We didn't do that in Afghanistan. We said, well, we're going to let you vote on things. And what do the people do? They voted for the Taliban. What do they do in Hamas? I mean, George Bush making, making the world safe for democracy. We immediately say, okay, we're going to let you vote on who your leaders are. And who do they vote for? They vote for Yasser Arafat. They vote for people, thugs like this. 
who then eliminate the vote and say, we're not going to have elections for the next 10 years. We're staying in power, and we're going to use you people who voted for us as human shields. So what should Israel do then? If it occupies Gaza, what should it do differently? Well, they, they have to absolutely—when uh, I say pacify, that means completely eliminate their ability and their weaponry, you know, any, both ideological and ability to uh, wage war on Israel again. And that means, in a sense, re-educating the existing population in Gaza about what is in their interest. That seems very difficult to do. It is very difficult. It's, it's a very, very difficult thing. But it's the only thing. Now, I'm open. If someone says, no, here's a better way to stop this kind of violence, and this, this, here's a better way for Americans and Israelis and anyone who believes in peace and trade and mutual voluntary exchange and all the things that we take for granted in a mostly free country, for us to feel more secure, for us to actually have more security, what is it going to take? Well, it's going to take some resolve. And it's going to take you know, a long-term investment on the part of the Israelis and with our support to say, no, we're not accepting this anymore. It's over. It's done. Yeah, I think it's hard to try to educate people what's quote-unquote in their interest. It is. Because I, I can imagine somebody in Hamas saying, we just need to educate the Israelis and what's in their interest, which right, and, for that person would be to die. Right, and, and that's where it comes down to it's no longer an exchange of ideas because they're not doing that. They're not willing to, to share and trade and use reason. That's fine if they want to destroy themselves, but unfortunately, that's not what they want. They seek the destruction of Israel and Americans, and that's why it's an existential threat. And we either deal with that now in the way of supporting Israel to do the right thing for themselves, or we'll have it more on our shores as well. And we've seen that. We have seen that over the last, you know, again, I keep going back to 50 years, but but uh, the mullahs in Iran declared war in 1979 against the U.S., and we have not really ever treated it like a war, even though we've spent so tragic amount of, I mean, the, the worst part is, is our bravest soldiers, our, you know, our, our soldiers, our, our, the people who are voluntarily joining to defend our freedom and our rights are used as cannon fodder across all these wars because we don't have the will and the conviction and the moral clarity to say, we're going to keep we're going to do the right thing. And in one sense, it could be easier than you think, Mitch. I mean, if you do, if you act on principle and you actually do the right thing and break the will of these people who are enemies or support the people, I mean, there are certainly Palestinians who probably want to live better than they do and would live, and they, you know, for a long time, they were actually living better in Israel. They would go back and forth across the border of Gaza and Israel and work in Israel because there were opportunities there. Yeah. They were better off. They were thriving. And certainly there are people in Iran and around, around the Middle East who would be better off if they had a rights-protecting regime in charge of their country. And they need, they need to fight for their own freedom themselves. And we've seen you know, examples of where they, you have little mini, mini uh, breakouts of, of people protesting, and then the West doesn't, doesn't even support them morally. It's horrible. Yeah. No, and I think this gets back to my point that I, I think there just has to be a solution to the idea of the Gaza Strip. And I don't mean bomb it so nobody can live there. There are millions of innocent people there or people who have a right to their individual rights, as we would say, but, you know, I, I think that we've got to finally figure out, you know, what are we going to do with the West Bank and Gaza? Because things can just not continue to go on as they have. That's right. That's right. Uh, 
And that means um, Israel wins there, and they have to make the investment of occupying these areas again. Um, now, people will accuse them of, oh, that's expansionism, uh, and that's just completely false. I mean, uh, Israel has tried to appease their enemies in every which way, from my perspective, and it's, it's only caused problems. And you know, those of you who are listening to us and you're familiar with the leadership program of the Rockies and our chairman, Bob Schaefer, says all the time, and, and he's right about this, the whole idea of peace coming through strength. You cannot be an appeaser of evil and expect to live in a peaceful country. And we've seen that time and again across history, and hopefully that lesson will be learned by both our American political structure, but more importantly, more urgently right now, and it's extremely urgent because, as you're pointing out, I mean, you're, I think, relatively sympathetic with, with the Israeli cause. And you're saying, well, but hold on this, you know, how is this going to happen? How is it on, the, you know, logistically, what is going to, what's the next step? What is going to Well, happen? how do you get a million people out of North Gaza to go live in South Gaza, which is already very, very tiny? Yeah. Well, and that's, the, that's another part of it. I mean, the, uh, the, will the Egyptians take them? Will all these, all these countries, all these nation states who act like they're, that they're supporters of Hamas or the Palestinian cause, will they take these people? They don't want them. They don't want them at all, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just another example. You can easily see how, in a Western sense, and I use that term, you know, maybe it's not fair to use, all the Western European countries and the U.S. have taken on refugee after refugee after refugee when... It's not necessarily in our interest to do so, other than just purely humanitarian reasons. We do that all the time. And these countries, these Arab countries that surround and threaten Israel all the time and say they're supporters of the Palestinian people and Palestinian, quote, liberation, they don't want nothing to do with them. They like them being used as shields in this cause as well. They don't, they don't really care about their own people. Uh, and so we have to stop caring as much about those people as we do our own and Israel needs to do the same thing. Well, I think in six months, we should revisit this and see how the conflict has evolved and see if it is being resolved in any way remotely close to what you have said is the way to actually get total victory. I think you're right. That would be a good, uh, a good thing to do, and we'll promise to do that. You'll hear from the Defenders of Capitalism Project within the next six months, and we'll reevaluate where it stands. In the meantime... We ask you to educate yourself. I mean, obviously, we, we are a source here, and you could read some of the books we've mentioned or listen to some of the podcasts that we've mentioned. There's lots of good resources out there on this topic that you know obviously don't necessarily agree with everything I've said. Please educate yourself on the issue. Be aware and make judgments. Make moral judgments. This is Michael Williams signing off for the Defenders of Capitalism Project. Hopefully you've enjoyed our little discussion about the war in the Middle East right now, and you'll also support ongoing our cause for educating people about individual rights and the proper role of government. Thank you for listening. 